Hello and welcome to another edition of Civicast, a series of podcasts from the National Civic Impact Accelerator Programme, funded by Research England. I'm John Fell, Senior Policy Advisor at the NCIA. In this episode, I spoke to Dr. Femi Owalade, Research Associate at the Centre for Regional Economic and Social Research, or CRAZER for short, at Sheffield Hallam University. Crazer are one of the key delivery partners of the NCIA programme, and Dr. Owaladi is publishing a research paper entitled Developing the Civic University Mission Lessons from Race Equality Initiatives in Higher Education. This interview was recorded in October 2023, ahead of the publication of Dr. Owaladi's paper. But before we talk about that, I asked Dr. Owaladi to tell me a bit about his own background and his career journey. My name is Dr. Femi Owaladi, Nigerian uh, by birth. Came to the UK. When I was uh, 16, I was actually an athlete. I uh, competed uh, for Nigeria when I was, you know, in my teens, so a long time ago. Uh, so I, you know, I did a PhD in uh, colonial history at King's College London. It was during, you know, the PhD that I began to develop an interest into, you know, equality, diversity and inclusion, and specifically, uh, you know, racial equality, you know, which is what I've written this paper on. You've written an academic research paper which will be published by the Centre for Regional Economic and Social Research and also part of the NCAA programme's outputs. Yes. Um, and that research paper is called Developing the Civic University Mission Lessons from Race Inequality Initiatives in Higher Education. What inspired you to research this topic of equality, diversity and inclusivity in higher education? While uh, undertaking, you know, my PhD, I looked at, um, so my topic was on law and British colonial rule in um, northern Nigeria. I had the opportunity to, you know, observe the source materials and and to see the creation of of race as a concept itself, you know. Race has become uh, such a big part of present day reality, but the concept of, of race was created in the 1800s. This was, you know, just a couple of decades before British colonial rule in in Africa. Having observed uh, just the fickleness of this concept itself, I began to um, find ways to deconstruct, you know, the concept of race. And I thought, you know, uh, doing research on, you know, racial equality, that would be a, you know, good way to satisfy my intellectual curiosity. What were some of the key challenges or barriers you found that universities face in becoming more civic-minded institutions? Okay, it was one of the expectations from Kreza that I would use my experience in EDI and racial equality to find ways in which systems change can be brought about in the civic university mission. Having um, studied and done research on you know, race equality initiatives like addressing the BAME awarding gap, uh, legislations and, decolonize- and decolonization, I thought you know, the journey that the uh, race equality has taken in the last you know, 20, 30 years, I thought that the civic university mission can learn from these journeys. You know, so the pitfalls, just the things that have been done uh, quite successfully. Um, I think can be replicated in the civic university uh, missions, and you'd actually be surprised by how you know similar these two concepts are. Could you give me an example of of how the the civic mission and the anti-racism kind of missions uh, cross over? 
Yes, yes. Uh, uh, one example that uh, comes to mind is the importance of building equitable partnerships. Uh, so there was a there's a report that was written by you know UK universities. It was published in 2018, and you know one of the recommendations is to have you know equitable partnerships. You know to ensure that you know uh, university leaders you know have conversations with uh, students and you know with other you know partners that work in the university. Having the equitable partnerships, uh, I think, has been, you know, one of the important factors that, you know, has led to creating a more racially equal university. I think it's important to give uh, just, uh, just an example to illustrate this point. So the BAME awarding gap is the difference between, you know, white students and students of the BAME background. So BAME meaning Black, Asian, and uh, ethnic minority uh, a background uh, in getting a first class or 2-1 and the gap was 13% in 2018. The gap has been closed by about 4% as of 2021 and one of the uh, reasons given for you know the closing of this gap is the conversations that you know universities have had since the BAME awarding gap became a real concern the conversations that have had, you know, the equitable partnerships has been, you know, developed at universities, you know, between university leaders and um, you know, professional services and, uh, you know, students. And I think having this equitable partnerships in the civic university mission can be very, very important. Your paper discusses, as you just mentioned, the BAME attainment gap and use the term BAME, which, as we know, stands for Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic. My understanding is that that term's not as commonly used now, or maybe people are starting to move away from that term. So why, why do you use that term in your paper? The term itself, well, I, I call it a grouping, yeah. is one that a lot of um, practitioners and researchers of race and equality have expressed um, concerns about uh, because uh, it groups just the experiences of the different ethnic groups in the UK. It sort of groups all the experiences and, and fails to identify the experiences of each individual grouping. And um, research has shown, uh, lived experiences have shown that, uh, you know, there's different ethnic groups have different experiences and they have different challenges, uh, they have different opportunities. So it's the, the the grouping is problematic. I think it's important to actually point out that a lot of organisations uh, and institutions, uh, you know, within the UK have um, tried to do away with the grouping. But I have used uh, this term as a way of convenience, you know. So it's I think it's important to recognise that a lot of the research, you know, that has been done in this area in the past, you know, ten years, you know, they've used. Uh, the BAME. So describing the awarding gap, you almost have to use, you know, BAME. But, you know, as we move forward, uh, I think it's important to, to do away with, with the term. You mentioned uh, about equitable partnerships and yes. how important they are, um, the importance of partnerships between students, academics and professional staff. So how can universities foster more equitable partnerships? The first thing is to look at university leadership. Having universal leaders that are committed to equitable partnerships, you know, is, is very important. And co-production and co-creation is also very important. Um, so I'll give, you know, decolonization as as an example. 
in many universities, although the universities that I know that I've worked with in the UK, uh, decolonization is almost uh, seen as a term or a call for action that is placed in the margins, engaged by students and not you know, academic staff. So I think I think it's important for uh, academic staff, you know, to have you know interest in you know such uh, uh, issues like decolonization. Uh, what are some examples of good practice that you've seen in universities who are trying to address issues of racial inequality? Oh, great! Um, I think there there are three examples uh, that come to mind, and you know these examples are uh, initiatives or things that I was actually you know directly involved in. And um, the, you know, these things, you know, did work. Uh, so in, in my previous uh, employment at King's College London, there was a, an event called Conversations About Race. So the event um, was held every month uh, between staff and students. And the idea of having a conversation about race is to, you know, break barriers, trying to, uh, you know, speak about, you know, the so-called taboo, you know, in, in race. Members of staff, you know, said that having these conversations has, you know, helped them to relate to students better. Uh, I think another example is building collaborative networks across um, all the spaces, you know, in the universities. So collaborative networks that uh, address issues that speak directly to the plight of the ethnic, you know, minority. So decolonization um, is a good example. And um, so I was part of a collaborative network on decolonization. Uh, at King's College London and this network um, consisted of uh, students and members of staff, so academic members of staff. Uh, this was, I think, in my opinion, very effective way of looking at how to decolonize the curriculum. Part of the activities of this network was to audit the curriculum, so we audited the reading list from participating uh, departments uh, in this project. So building this collaborative network, you know, among students and members of staff and, and infusing a research element into, you know, this network and, and having uh, some evaluation of the research that has been done as well. I think that's another effective way. And uh, the last but not the least is, you know, addressing the BAME awarding gap. The BAME awarding gap is, is something that makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable and, you know, confronting it and addressing it directly is um, sometimes just seen as a difficult task and uh, a task that I believe uh, would almost uh, acknowledge the fact that there is a BAME awarding gap and you know putting resources for universities to put resources into addressing it uh, by having you know conversations um, by doing research I think that would be ad admit an admission on the part of the university that um, the, the gap actually exists but I think being upfront about about um, the existence of the BAME awarding gap and addressing it confronting it think is is a is a good example you know of, of you know good practice do you think initiatives like decolonizing the curriculum have had much real impact so far and what needs to happen for more progress i mean i know a lot has been written on this you know on decolonizing the curriculum though the language that is used to actually um, explain what a decolonized curriculum would look like is very 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 difficult it's very difficult to articulate it and i think 
that has affected the way in which impact has been done and the way in which people have understood what you're really trying to say when you say you want to decolonize a curriculum are you trying to you know like bring in marginalized perspectives into the reading list that some people believe that's what decolonizing the curriculum is others believe in uh, making the curriculum more international bring in um, works that has been done by different um, international scholars and then there's more radical understanding of decolonizing the curriculum which believes that uh, the entire curriculum uh, in you know western universities is so eurocentric that it should be dismantled you know altogether and so that's a more radical understanding of decolonizing the curriculum so i think it's important to have a shared understanding of what decolonizing a curriculum is. And I think that should be a starting point, you know, in um, trying to um, make a real change. And I think until we have this shared understanding, it becomes very difficult to persuade, uh, you know, university leaders and, you know, people that um, have um, just very little interest in this uh, decolonizing curriculum. It's going to be very difficult to persuade them as to what uh, we actually mean by decolonizing the curriculum. It's, it's, you know, so important, obviously, the use of language. Maybe decolonizing is problematic to some people, and the question is whether you pander to those people by using a different term, or it would be more positive. I don't know. So, like, decolonizing is is almost like a trigger. Colonization is still, I believe, like a trigger trigger word. You know, it's um, certainly quite similar to uh, like racism. Is is almost like you know you're trying to attack. Uh, it's very politicized, you know. Exactly. Very politicized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the best way to put it. So it's, it's, it's a it's a term that you know raises you know some wrong emotions. Mm. Uh, makes um, I think just to be very blunt, uh, makes a lot of white people that I've engaged you know with it makes them feel uncomfortable. So when a a movement, I call decolonizing a curriculum a movement. When a movement like decolonizing a curriculum is being put on the forefront of this course in universities and public discourse as well, mm. you know, you almost expect, uh, you know, people to feel uh, guilty or to have a negative, you know, reaction to it. But I don't think that should um, come in the way of, you know, making a change and mm. actually changing, you know, what the curriculum, um, you know, look like because this present university curriculum is, is in many ways a reflection of just the Eurocentrism. Mm. Uh, is a, is a reflection of, uh, in many ways, uh, the colonization of, uh, you know, minority people. A reality is that people make political capital out of words which are not necessarily negative, but they put a negative spin on it. So one example I would give is the term woke and its origins from like the black civil rights movement is now used yes. as an insult and a slur against yes. anyone trying to you know tackle any injustice and has been grasped by people who want to use it in a negative way and yes. the headline so when they see a headline of decolonize the curriculum it's like this is somehow a threat and i think that also plays on the themes in your paper as well yes about discomfort and yes. change yes and to get you know to a position of social or to address social injustices there has to be some level of discomfort and yes which needs to be worked through yes yes so yeah yes. Anyway, thank you thank you yes. um in your paper you talk about the limitations of legislation in driving change so what policy or systemic changes are needed instead 
So, you know, race is one of the protected characteristics, you know, in the Equality Act 2010. You expect, you know, institutions, you know, to comply with uh, anti-racism practices within their you know, institutions, especially public, public institutions, uh, you know, to be specific. So it's important to note that, that on paper, it takes a strong stance against racism. One of the criticisms of the Equality Act is that, you know, it becomes almost like a tick box exercise. So um, just to give an example, you know, universities are expected to have, you know, inclusion in, you know, their policies, um, you know, staff training, inclusion is almost like a, like a buzzword, you know, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, universities pride themselves in. Like, you know, if you ask at a university, like, are you, do you have inclusion you, as part of your policy? You know, they speak of it like with pride without actually having a deep, uh, you know, look into their, their practices. It's, uh, it's important to, to know uh, the difference between how these uh, legislations are written and their applications in the day-to-day, you know, day-to-day uh, workings of, of the universities. So, you know, research has been uh, conducted by Sarah Abed on just how effective, you know, these legislations have been, you know, so, uh, so staff at uh, universities, you know, still, you know, complain about, you know, feeling excluded, feeling, you know, microaggression. And um, I think policies that specific, uh, specifically, like, target um, issues of race, think they they can be more uh, effective so there's uh, ins- there's there are institutional initiatives that spe- specifically target race inequalities uh, I think an example is the initiation of the advanced HE race equality charter uh, you know which provides a framework to identify and self-reflect on their institutional and cultural barriers there's got to be conversations with university leaders. Uh, people that are really interested in decolonizing the curriculum need to speak very openly. The barriers, of course, that have to be shattered and brought down as well. I think having these human uh, interactions and conversations, you know, would help to um, to make everyone, you know, come on board mm. and uh, make a change really happen. Legislations are positive on paper, but actually doing doing the job, you know, putting yeah. people on the ground, you know, to actually see that, you know, this uh, legislations are being followed. I think that's what is um, quite missing right now. Yeah, it's the implementation. Yes. Implementation. The actions behind the, actions the behind. positive words. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So then, on that note, what advice would you, would you give university leaders who want to make their institutions more civic-minded and anti-racist? The most obvious one would just be to foreground and to prioritise these issues, like being a civic university. Uh, Civic, uh, you know, needs to be placed at the forefront of the universities of public engagement. Uh, You know, it can't just be something that is seen almost like an add-on. It's got to be a language, you know, that is uh, is used in a positive light. Uh, I think working with strategic partners is also important. In my experience, I've observed that the anti-racist university mission has um, excluded partners. So partners like community leaders that really work on uh, racial equality. Uh, you know, community organization, you know, charity groups that have experience, maybe not academic experience, 
but they have practical experience on on uh, building you know race uh, anti-racist uh, community working with these partners and making sure that the relationship is equitable i think that's that's a good way touching on what we said earlier on uh, dr oladi about the limitations of legislation how can universities avoid tokenistic approaches to equality and make it a really embedded part of their culture? Uh, having rigorous training is certainly an important step. In all the universities, or well, most of the universities that I've worked in, uh, I think that you know a lot can be done. A lot more can be done on training, you know, the members of staff, and you know, using good training materials using le- better learning uh, you know, tools and resources uh, to make sure that you know, the, the staff uh, actually understand you know, what it is to be you know, an anti-racist university and uh, not just uh, making it like a token. Uh, I think another thing that universities uh, can do is to be less uh, risk adver- uh, adverse I think you know universities tend to uh, be very you know, cautious in their approach and not being too radical. You know, you spoke about you know being woke, the woke thing, and and now it's seen like as a as a bad uh, term or as a bad you know concept. And I think uh, universities can be more brave, you know, in their stance against racism. You know, calling out you know racism, um, uh, showing uh, solidarity to you know people that are working in this field. And of course, you know, foregrounding and prioritizing, uh, you know, the work that people in this field do. This is a big issue that I've had, you know, direct experience with. So a lot of people that work in this field, in the field of, you know, racism and anti-racism, they do the work uh, pro bono, free of charge. Mm. You know, they are not well paid for it. Uh, They're part-time, you know, members, members of staff. Um, they're not employed on a full-time mm. uh, basis. So I think giving like a reward to uh, or creating like a, a reward system for people doing this this you know sort of work. Yeah, I think that could be more encouraging mm. uh, uh, for them, and that would mean that um, you know universities don't just have a tokenistic um, you know approaches to to uh, equality. Yeah, because going back to what you're saying before, ticking boxes, you know. We can all go on a training course and mark the tick to say we've had EDI training and then those statistics can be reported yes. from a university leader. What would better quality EDI training or, or race equality training look like? Does that is that intrinsic or is that tied to the voices of the teachers and the people creating those materials? What are your thoughts yes. on that? So I think uh, so bringing you know experts you know who are actually working on the field having workshops, you know, where, you know, experts, preferably people of minor, minority people, uh, because I believe, I strongly believe in representation. Uh, so I think that would um, just make it uh, seem like th- th- that universities actually care, you know, and no, and this is just not a tokenistic thing, you know. So having uh, workshops, uh, having expert opinions, drafting the questions, that specifically speak about racial equality because I've, I've had the privilege of seeing you know a lot of questions on this training uh, on this um, you know EDI training and the ones that relate to racial equality they can almost be used interchangeably with you know gender or just the other you know parts of the EDI or the you know, protected characteristics you know under the EDI 
I think it's important to do away with this all-encompassing uh, uh, approach to providing a solution. The, the questions uh, have to be specific to, to race, to race equality, and not just UDI. Obviously, you've, you've written this paper, um, and you're also involved in other activity in the programme. So I understand you're working with our partners, the National Coordinating Centre for Public Engagement, on the Action Learning Programme as part of uh, the NCAA programme. I know it's still quite early days in that, in that process, but could you tell me a bit about your involvement so far? It's, um, it's really been a good experience. I, um, it's been a really good, there's been some interesting emerging themes coming out already. And, uh, you know, I'm really excited about, you know, analyzing the data that I'm co currently collecting, you know, as an observer and, uh, you know, writing up the outputs. And are you finding the, the themes that we talked about a little today, the equitable partnerships, are they... Yes. Are they strong in the action learning program outputs too? Yes, 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 they actually are. Like they, they're just the importance of um, just having uh, this uh, conversations, having equitable partnerships and uh, the uh, importance of having, you know, strong leadership, you know, leaders that um, would, you know, communicate with um, community groups that would relate with um, community groups. And the leaders are committed to having, you know, the, this equitable partnerships too. I think, you know, that's one thing that's come out a lot, you know, in the sessions I have observed. And yes, I'm really looking, looking forward to, to how, how it pans out. Thank you to Dr. Owaladi for talking about his forthcoming research paper, Developing the Civic University Mission, Lessons from Race Equality Initiatives in Higher Education. You'll find a link to Dr. Owaladi's paper in the text accompanying this podcast, wherever you might be listening to us from. If you'd like to find out more about the NCIA programme, you can also find links to our webpage and social media too. We'll have another edition of Civicast ready for you very soon, but until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>